Well, I, um, I was born Republican, and um, from the time I was, you know, like this tall, if you were to ask me to give you some words to describe the younger version of myself, like the four or five-year-old version of myself, I would say hyper-conservative. And uh, I, I remember at the age of 10, waking up at five in the morning just so that I could watch Rush Limbaugh on TV. Um, and so not your typical 10-year-old. Uh, when I was in sixth grade, I was, uh, I was in a play, and like a play at like a professional theater, and it was a play where all the other actors were adults. So I spent several hours every day just around adults. And, uh, and the people in that play with me uh, uh, termed me or called me their, uh, their favorite little born-again Republican. And so um, I, I think that was a term of endearment. Um, I'm not sure. It kind of stresses me out to think of the things that my 11-year-old mouth were saying to them that, that would, they would give me that title. But um, that's, that's kind of that's how I was as a kid. And as I've grown up, I feel like I'm a little bit more middle of the road. I, I, I feel like I don't lean too far to one side or the other. In fact, I think a pretty uh, prayerful and thoughtful examination of Scripture kind of keeps us from leaning too far to one side or the other. In fact, if we really believe that this is God's word and it's the authority and, and, we, and we put ourselves under the authority of God's word, there are going to be some issues where we're going to all come across as very conservative and there might be some issues where we're going to come across liberal and there's going to be some issues that maybe it's okay to, to, to fall on either side. As I said in the, in the announcements, we're entering into a series on justice and we're going to be looking at what God's word says about justice. And I want to just say right up front um, that some of the things that maybe you'll hear over the next several weeks will feel political, but they're not. Okay? I just want you to know, like, the heart behind this is not to get political. I just, we're in such a divisive uh, political season right now that you can almost, um, you can hardly say anything without it coming across as being politically motivated. But that's not the point. See, our point is not to try to apply politics to God's word. Our, our point is try to take God's word and apply it to all areas of our life, including politics. And as I've been praying and thinking about and, and preparing for today in this series, my prayer over and over again has been, Lord, let us all hold whatever views we bring in here loosely so that we can actually engage in what you're calling us to. So that's my goal. And that's going to be the goal of everyone you hear speak over the next few weeks. Now, to frame this series on justice, we're going to be using Jesus's first sermon. It's a sermon found in Luke 4, and uh, we're going to look at it right now. Now, it's not printed in your bulletin because it's not the main text for the sermon, um, which I know some of you are thinking, oh my goodness, we're going to study two different scriptures today. This is going to be awful. No, I promise it's not going to be very long, but we're going to start off by looking in Luke 4, and if uh, you have a Bible, you can turn with me there. I'm going to read Luke 4, verses 16 through 21. He, being Jesus, went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. 
he began by saying to them, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. This is God's word. This was Jesus's first sermon. And he deliberately sought out this passage from Isaiah 61 as the starting point for the launch of his public ministry. This is a big deal. This is a big, we have to take notice of the fact that like Jesus wanted to begin everything he was going to do in this passage. When I preached my first sermon here at Summit, I, I preached from Genesis 3 about the fall of mankind. Now, I, I don't want to overanalyze like, what that says about me, but I do want to look at what Jesus preaching from Isaiah 61 says about him, what it says about his mission and the mission that he's called us to. Did you hear what he said after he finished reading this passage in Isaiah? He said, today, this has been fulfilled in your hearing. He's not talking about something that's going to happen one day in eternity, although it is true. All this will be true when we have a new heaven and a new earth. He's talking about something that's happening in the here and now, kind of like when he taught us to pray, when he taught us the Lord's Prayer, and he said to pray, may it be on earth as it is in heaven. These are not things that he's saying we should just one day long for. He's saying these are things that we can experience right now. And so over the next four weeks in this series on justice, we're going to be looking at these different aspects uh, from this passage, declaring the mission of God, to proclaim good news to the poor, freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, and to set the oppressed free. And today, we're going to look at what it means to set the oppressed free. So we have to start by saying, all right, who's the oppressed? Almost every time the word justice appears in the Old Testament, an oppressed group of people is also mentioned. I'm, a, I'm currently listening to a book on, like an audio book um, by Brian Stevenson called Just Mercy. If you haven't, if you haven't read it, um, uh, let me just say, it's not a great book to listen to while you're driving because you get like emotional and you get angry. And, and I like to think of myself as a pretty pleasant and, and happy person. And I, and I think that I smile a lot. But, uh, but the other day I was driving, I was listening to it and I was getting all worked up. And one of the other pastors on staff, Andy Simons, pulled up behind me at a stoplight and he honked. And he describes the look I gave him as like that I wanted to murder him when I turned around. And he said, I will never honk at you again, Zach. And, and it's because I was listening to this book and uh, I was also listening to this book the other night when I was driving to pick up some takeout from Payway and I was at the counter and uh, and again I think I'm a pleasant like smiley person but I'm at the counter and I'm, I'm paying for the takeout and I turn to walk away and a guy at one of the other registers waiting in line at the other registers goes yeah that's right walk away tough guy and I was like Thank you for calling me a tough guy. No one's ever called me a tough guy. But, uh, but I, I guess like the, the book has affected me that way, that, that, all the, that all of a sudden I'm carrying around all this tension. Um, but I, I want to read to you something he says at the very beginning of the book. He says, the opposite of poverty is not wealth. The opposite of poverty is justice. Now, I remember the first time I heard that as it being a very striking statement, but I wasn't quite sure what that meant. But as I started looking at the word justice in the Bible, I think it's a pretty good biblical definition of justice. See, the Hebrew word for justice is mishpat. It's kind of a funny sounding word, it, 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 mishpat. And, and with this word, um, it, it has all kinds of meanings, but, but one is that it's to acquit or to punish every person based on the merits of a case, regardless of race or social status, but it also has this idea of giving people their rights. 
Proverbs 31, 9 says, defend the rights of the poor and the needy. In other words, give people what they're due, whether that's punishment or protection or care. And over and over again, this word mishpat is used to describe taking care and, the, and, and standing up for the cause of the oppressed. And, and mentioned by name several times in the Old Testament are widows, orphans, immigrants, and the poor. Zechariah 7, 10 through 11 says, this is what the Lord Almighty says, administer true justice, show mercy and compassion to one another. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the immigrant or the poor. Now in this time in history, the world was primarily an agrarian society. And so the people that were often mentioned as being the oppressed um, were the people that were at greatest risk of losing everything, of being caught in, in, in destitution or starvation. In his book, Generous Justice, uh, which I'm also reading right now, which is also messing me up, uh, Tim Keller suggests that in our world today, it's appropriate to, to expand this group of people who are in danger or who, had, who are at risk of being oppressed to the refugee, the migrant worker, the homeless, and in some cases, the single parent and the elderly. And he goes on to say that the justice of our society, according to the Bible, will be evaluated by how we treat these groups of people. And any neglect to the needs of these people is not just a lack of mercy or charity, but is a clear violation of justice. God over and over again identifies himself with the oppressed. He over and over again says, I'm a father to the fatherless. I'm a defender of widows. Psalm 146, 7 says, He executes justice for the oppressed and gives food to the hungry. Deuteronomy 10, 17 and 18 says, The Lord your God defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow. He loves the immigrant, giving him food and clothing. The main way the God of the Bible wants to be known is as the God of the oppressed. The main way the God of the Bible wants to be known is as the God of the oppressed. And maybe you're here today and you're just kind of checking things out. Like maybe, maybe church isn't your thing. Maybe you haven't ever been to church. You haven't been to church in a long while. And I want to ask you in particular, when you think of the God of the Bible, is the first thought that comes to your mind, oh yeah, that's the God of the oppressed. If it's not, why is that? Well, it must be because we are not known as people of the oppressed. This isn't a political thing. This is a people of God thing. The hope of the world is not in a particular government, but in the church. When, when Jesus came on the scene, the, the people who were looking for him aside, the religious leaders of the day, they wanted so desperately for, for God to set up a new political system that would solve all the problems. But that's not what he did. What did he do? He came and he brought the church. And we've been saying for the, for the past, you know, at least year and a half that the church is us. The church is people devoted to God in community on mission for God's glory. So whether or not we have a government known for being on the side of the oppressed, we as the body of Christ, as the church, have to be known as people who are on the side of the oppressed. So how do we become that? How, how do we take part in what Jesus said has already begun when he said, set the oppressed free? What's that look like for us? 
Well, the main text for our sermon, which is printed in your bulletin, is Deuteronomy 15. And um, it's, it's kind of a wordy passage, and I'm going to read the whole thing, and I just want to give you a heads up that it might be a little bit cumbersome to get through, but I encourage you, look at your bulletin if it helps to read along, and, and we're going to really dissect this, because I think there's so much wisdom uh, located in this passage of Scripture from the Old Testament that will help us as we begin to think about what it means for us to be a part of this mission. So we're in Deuteronomy 15, and I'm going to start reading in the first verse. At the end of every seven years, you must cancel debts. This is how it is to be done. Every creditor shall cancel any loan they have made to a fellow Israelite. They shall not require payment from anyone among their own people, because the Lord's time for canceling debts has been proclaimed. You may require payment from a foreigner, but you must cancel any debt your fellow Israelite owes you. However, there need be no poor people among you. For in the land the Lord your God is giving you to possess as your inheritance, he will richly bless you. If only you fully obey the Lord your God and are careful to follow all these commands I am giving you today. For the Lord your God will bless you as he has promised, and you will lend to many nations, but will borrow from none. You will rule over many nations, but none will rule over you. If anyone is poor among your fellow Israelites in any of the towns of the land the Lord your God is giving you, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted toward them. Rather, be open-handed and freely lend them whatever they need. Be careful not to harbor this wicked thought. The seventh year, the year for canceling debts, is near, so that you do not show ill will toward the needy among your fellow Israelites and give them nothing. They may then appeal to the Lord against you, and you will be found guilty of sin. Give generously to them and do so without a grudging heart. Then because of this, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in everything you put your hand to. There will always be poor people in the land. Therefore, I command you to be open-handed toward your fellow Israelites who are poor and needy in your land. If any of your people, Hebrew men or women, sell themselves to you and serve you six years, in the seventh year you must let them go free. And when you release them, do not send them away empty-handed. Supply them liberally from your flock, your threshing floor, and your wine press. Give to them as the Lord your God has blessed you. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you. That is why I give you this command today. This is God's word. Okay, if we're gonna understand what God is actually calling his people to in this passage, we have to first put it in the context of, of, of their situation. See, in this agrarian society, in a pre-industrial society, people did not deliberately go out and ask for loans because they wanted to get ahead in life. Um, it, it wasn't like this idea of a business loan and, and there was no mortgage loan. And so if you were asking for a loan, it was really because you, you absolutely needed it. I think about a farm. Most of the people were farmers. So why would a farmer need a loan? A farmer only needs loans when their crop was so bad that they don't have money to buy seed for the next year's crop. So the average farmer would, would you know, would 
toil the ground and, and you know, do all that. St- I, I'm showing how non-agrarian I am. But, but you know, they, 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 crops would grow. They would, you know, do whatever they have to do, shake them, I don't know. And, 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 then they, and, then, and then they would sell them and they would, you know, provide for their family and, and they would always need enough money to buy crops for the next year. So there are a number of reasons why a particular year they might have a bad crop. Maybe there was a famine. Um, maybe there was some kind of military conflict. Maybe they just had bad luck this year. Uh, there could be a death or an illness in the family. Any of these things could cause a person's crop to be bad for that year. And if your crop was bad, your family was facing poverty. If you didn't have enough money for seed for the next year, you, you were facing uh, kind of compounding poverty. You could lose your land. You could possibly even starve. So therefore, if a person needed a loan, which is what God is talking about here to his people in Deuteronomy 15, if, they, if a person needed a loan, it was because this person was falling into poverty. And that's why it's not nearly as prejudiced as it sounds in verse 3 when, when he says, all right, you've got to forgive the debts of your fellow Israelites, but, but you don't have to forgive the foreigner. Um, that, that sounds very prejudiced, but the, but the reason it's different is because foreigners didn't own land in Israel at the time. So, so whatever it's talking about there, whatever kind of loans that would have been, a foreigner in Israel would have been a man who was there as a trader of goods. Uh, and so anything, kinda, anything set up there wasn't tied to the land and wasn't tied to if this goes wrong, I'm going to be in poverty. And so that, that's why there's a little bit of a difference there because what God is talking about is he's talking about this is how I want my people to act towards people who are in danger of becoming oppressed, who are in danger of falling into poverty. They're the ones who need a loan. If you get a loan one year because your, your crop is bad, and then the next year your crop is bad again, all of a sudden you can't pay back that first loan, what ends up happening is you end up becoming a slave. Now, it's not a slave like you and I think of slavery. It was an indentured servitude. It was, I'm going to go work for you until my debt is paid off. So that's the background. If you need a loan, it was because you were falling into poverty. And then God says, okay, my people, this is how you're going to be. This is what true justice looks like. And the first thing he does is he calls his people to a radical generosity. Look in verse 1 of chapter 15. It says, every seven years, all debts were forgiven in Israel. And then down in in, in verses 12 through 15, it says all the slaves were free. In verses 7 through 9, God says, when someone falls into poverty, you must give them everything that they need. And then he goes on to say, if it's only two years till the time of release, it's only two years until you know all the debts have to be forgiven, you might think to yourself, all right, this person needs a loan, but I'm only going to get about 20% of this back, and so I'm not going to give this loan. God says, no, you cannot do that. In fact, you cannot do that, and you cannot even have, an un, you cannot even have a grudging heart against the person asking you for a loan that you know you won't get the full value back. You see what he's, he's calling this community to? He's calling them to a radical generosity. Now, I don't know like, economically how that works out in our situation necessarily, but I think the heart of it is still the same. He's saying my people have a radical generosity where they will give and meet needs no matter if they're going to get payback. Every seven years, everybody got a reset, which meant no one could fall into long-term crushing debt, which is the main way people become oppressed. It's the main way people fall into poverty and slavery. Therefore, God is calling an entire society of people to an astonishing level of generosity toward the poor. So that's the first thing. 
says, my people will be radically generous. And secondly, he causes people to empower the poor to self-sufficiency. Now, there's a difference between self-sufficiency and relief. Relief means you're going you're gonna to give someone something to, to meet an acute need. It's like a Band-Aid. It's to keep someone from starving. Uh, it's a homeless shelter or a soup kitchen. It's kind of what the Good Samaritan did for the man by the wayside. But to empower the poor to self-sufficiency is about economic development. It's much more expensive and much more difficult. It's bringing a person to a place of self-sufficiency. I want to read to you again verses 12 through 15. It says this, If any of your people, Hebrew men or women, sell themselves to you and serve you six years, in the seventh year you must, you must let them go free. And when you release them, do not send them away empty-handed. Supply them liberally from your flock, your threshing floor, and your wine press. Give to them as the Lord your God has blessed you. What this is talking about here is capital. There was no banks then. They didn't have cash. And, and so imagine this. If a person fell into debt so deeply that they had to become an indentured servant, that meant that when you released them, not only would their debt be wiped out, but that you had to give them everything they needed in order to get back on their feet, in order to thrive. In other words, if a person has, has had such bad luck with their crops uh, that they have at one time had to become a slave, when you set them free from that, there's no way, there's absolutely no way that they're going to be able to get back on their feet alone, that they're going to be needed to be provided for. And he says, provide liberally. Supply them liberally from your flock, from your threshing floor, and from your wine press. So God is calling his people not to just be relief workers, but to economic development, an economic development that empowers people to self-sufficiency. So how expensive is that compared to relief? It's a lot. This includes job training, which is one of the reasons we, we, we have job partnership that we're a part of. This is about better schools. It's about helping people overcome destructive behaviors. Uh, our Christmas Eve offering this year went to Samaritan Village, which is doing just this, helping to set people up so that they can come to a place of economic, social, moral, personal, and spiritual self-sufficiency. It's a far greater investment. And God says, if you're my people, you will be committed to that. You will be radically generous, and you'll be committed, committed to the empowerment of the poor and the oppressed. And lastly, there's a call to hope. When I was growing up, and, and my church growing up, there was, a, there was a missionary who always came every year. He was kind of like our main missionary, if that's a thing. But, he, but he, that's what he was. His name was Saul Cruz, and, and he worked with the poorest of the poor in Mexico City. And I remember he always used to say, poverty is not a lack of things, it's a lack of hope. And uh, just recently, I took my kids uh, to see the movie Newsies, um, which happens, Kelly, my girl, my, my wife, my, my wife, my girlfriend, Kelly, my wife, was my girlfriend in fifth grade, and our first date was to see the movie Newsies. Um, and, uh, and so, you know, it's coming back out at the movie theater, and I thought, well, we're going to take the family, you know, relive this, you know, this moment. And, uh, and it wasn't like a real date. My parents were there. There were other people there. You know, like we did the thing where our hands were both on the hand rest and our pinkies kind of rubbed each other, and it was like, yay! Um, but, but so, anyways, all that to say, I, was, I went to Newsies recently with my kids at the movie theater, and what struck me, if you don't know the, the film, it's, it's a musical, but it's 
it's, it's based on um, kind of the unionization of, of boys who sold newspapers in the late 1800s. And, and so it's a bunch of uh, poor, a lot of orphan boys who, who feel like the man's taking advantage of them. And um, anyways, in the movie, the main character, Jack Kelly, who kind of leads this group, um, the turning point um, that, that has to be overcome is when he loses hope. When he loses hope, it's like everything falls apart. Uh, but there's this one song in the film called Santa Fe that Jack Kelly sings, and it really, that's where his hope is. His hope is that one day he'll be in a place where life won't feel like this anymore, where he'll be heard, where he can be free, where, 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 where he can be all that he wants to be. Hope is that important. Poverty is not the lack of things. It's the lack of hope. And in verse 4 of Deuteronomy 15, God says, there will be no poor among you if you do everything I'm telling you to do today. But then did anyone else hear in verse 11 what he then says? He then says, there will always be poor among you even if you do everything I'm telling you to do today. So what's that about? Is it being contradictory? No. There's a reason behind that. See, the Bible is remarkably balanced when it talks about the reasons people become poor. There's oppression, there's calamity, there's self-destructive behavior. Because we live in a fallen world, because we live in a sinful world, people will always be becoming poor. But what God is saying here, he's saying, if you're my people, and if you do everything I say, there will not be a permanent class of poor people among you. There won't be this never-ending cycle of poverty for the same people, the same types of people over and over again. He's painting a picture of hope. One commentator of this passage puts it like this. Here we see the combination of upholding the highest ideal on the one hand and legislating for the realities of a sinful people on the other. For the fruitful ethical tension between what ought to be and what actually is. <clears throat> so, some of you might be thinking, okay, it's great, but you can't pick up what the Bible says about the Old Testament to Israel, a theocratic nation state in which every single citizen has a covenant relationship with God. We don't have anything like that today. You can't just pick that up and then set it down on America or any society and say, this is how it has to be. And you're right. You can't. You can't take Deuteronomy 15 and say, okay, now this is what the government in America should look like. But you can pick up what God tells the Old Testament people of God to be committed to and put it down on the New Testament people of God, Christians. You can't put it on the government, but you can put it on the church. In Acts 4, 34 and 35, it says this. This is in the New Testament. This is right after Jesus has ascended, has, has died, resurrected and ascended. Luke in, in the Acts writes this. There were no needy persons among them. For from that, from for from time to time, those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone as he had need. Did you hear that? Luke is directly taking what God said. If you follow everything I'm telling you today, there will be no needy person among you in Israel. And Luke is picking it up and putting it down here and saying, Christians do this. That this is how Christians operate. 
that Christians actually live this out. Maybe they're not going to eradicate poverty in their whole city, but what they do when they're, when they're committed to radical generosity, when they're committed to empowering those who are oppressed to self-sufficiency, and when they paint pictures of hope, they actually make a difference. Luke, the writer of the books of Acts, is telling us by quoting from Deuteronomy 15 in Acts 4 that the attitude God tells the people of God in the Old Testament to have towards the poor and oppressed is the same attitude that Christians of the New Testament should have. This isn't a political thing. This is a people of God thing. Jonathan Edwards, the 18th century uh, pastor, um, who, if he were here in this room, um, and in our modern context, we would think he was like way, way conservative, like extremely conservative. Um, but I want you to hear what he said. Jonathan Edwards said, there is no command in the Bible laid down in stronger terms than the command of giving to the poor and the oppressed. There is no command in the Bible laid down in stronger terms than the command of giving to the poor and the oppressed. This is a people of God thing. So that's what we're called to. So now how do we do that? Back when we were looking at the parable of the Good Samaritan a few weeks ago, I quoted uh, Hebrews 13, 9, which says, Our hearts must be established by grace. A heart established by grace leads to doing justice. It leads to what, what God calls us to in Deuteronomy 15.10, to give generously and without a grudging heart. The Bible never calls us to do something without giving us the resources to do it. And he actually makes it pretty clear in this passage in Deuteronomy. In verse 4, he says, There should be no poor among you in the land the Lord your God is giving you. Do you hear what he's doing there? He's saying, I gave you everything. I gave you the promised land. You didn't earn it. You didn't work hard for it. You didn't pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. I brought you up out of Egypt because I was generous to you and gave you what you have. When you see someone who is poor and in need and, 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 and at risk to becoming oppressed, you need to give to them. And in case they missed it, he gets very explicit at the end of the passage in verses 14 and 15. After he talks about supplying uh, the, the former slave liberally, he then goes on to say, Give to them as the Lord your God has blessed you. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you. That is why I give you this command today. Remember that you were a slave. Remember that you were poor and I redeemed you. I set you free. You didn't work your way out. Therefore, because my grace to you is free, whenever you meet someone who is poor or oppressed, you should treat them in the same way that I treat you. God is saying to them, you know, he, he's not saying, because you're doing justice for the poor, I saved you. No, he's saying, because I saved you by grace, because you didn't earn it at all, because you did nothing for your salvation, because I saved you by grace, you should be doing justice for the poor. Grace leads you to being just. A heart established by grace leads you to doing justice. And this isn't just an Old Testament thing. I mean, if you read the Old Testament, like I said, there's so many passages about justice and the oppressed. 
And it's kind of throughout. I mean, I quoted a few to you, but if you read it, it's just over and over again. And some people will say, well, that happens a lot in the Old Testament, but then the New Testament, that kind of goes away. The New Testament is really all about personal salvation. It's about what Jesus did to cover your sin. And so that's the, we should be people of that. And that is true. But I want you to know that what the New Testament does, it actually goes beyond what the Old Testament has said. In 2 Corinthians 8, Paul says to the Corinthians, you must give to the poor. And then he says why you do, you must. He says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. In the Old Testament, God says, because my grace is free, you should give to the poor. In the New Testament, God says, because my grace was costly, because it cost my son his life, you should give sacrificially to the poor. In the Old Testament, the people of God knew that getting out of Egypt was like a get out of jail free card, but they had no idea what it would cost God to save sinful people. In the New Testament, we do. We know how costly it was for Jesus Jesus Christ to go to the cross and save us. We know that we are spiritually poor and that Christ lost his spiritual riches. He became spiritually poor so that through his poverty, you and I might become rich. There is a motivation and an understanding on this side of Jesus that takes us beyond anything the Old Testament people of God would have had. So when we read Deuteronomy 15, this Old Old Testament text, that calls God's people to radical generosity, empowering the poor and oppressed to self-sufficiency and to a beautiful picture of hope, our response should be, but of course, put me in, coach. What do I need to do? What do I need to give? What do I, how do I need to serve? What do I need to be a part of? I grew up in, like I said, in, in this church where this missionary Saul Cruz came every year to speak and um, so my whole life, I, I heard stories about what he was doing there. And in my mid-20s, I got invited to a dinner with him and about 10 other 20-somethings. And, and the reason the dinner was happening was because uh, the partnership with him had started like 30 years ago with people in their 20s. And those people were all now in their 50s, and, and, and a lot of the work that they would do on these missions trips would be pretty hard labor. And so they were trying to get some of us young 20-somethings to like want to be a part of it. And so, so they had this dinner to really try to inspire us to, to be a part of what God was doing in Mexico City through Saul's ministry. And, um, and I remember going to the dinner, and it was right at the point of my story where I had really started to understand that this really is all about grace, that Christianity really is all about grace. And I remember going to the dinner thinking, man, I'm probably not going to hear much about grace tonight, and I'm probably just going to hear about how much I'm not doing for the poor. And I kind of had that attitude, um, but I was so surprised Because one of the first things Saul said to us at dinner was that the greatest resource for healing the inner city and the brokenness of the people that he works with every day is the doctrine that we're justified by grace alone. I remember thinking, like, that's that's really like crazy. Like he had just showed us a slideshow with with some of the most devastating images of of extreme poverty. And I was I was looking at those people and I was thinking, that really those Let's be practical. Those people, the best thing you have to offer to them is this abstract doctrine of justification by faith, by grace alone. And, uh, and he went on to say this. 
Imagine that you have no job, no money. You live uh, cut off from the rest of society in a world that is ruled totally by poverty and violence. Your skin is the wrong color, and you have no hope that anything will ever change. Around you is a society that has been built on the iron law of achievement, and its expensive goods are flaunted before your eyes every day on television, and in a thousand ways, your society tells you you are worthless because you have no achievement. He says you are a failure. You will know you will continue to be a failure because there's no way that you're going to achieve tomorrow what you can't manage to achieve today. So your dignity is shattered. Your soul is enveloped in the darkness of despair. He said, now imagine someone comes to you and tells you the gospel. That you are not defined by your outside circumstances. That you're not even defined by your poor choices. What if someone tells you that you count, that you matter, and even more than that, that you are loved unconditionally and infinitely, irrespective of anything you've ever achieved or failed to achieve? Justification by grace, a useless doctrine to the oppressed, rubbish. It is that very doctrine that sets the oppressed free. We've been set free. We know that we have been saved by grace alone, that we have not pulled ourselves up from our bootstraps, that everything we have has been a gift from a gracious God. The world outside, I was, just, I was actually just talking with a, a guy who goes here um, who's, who's helping with the babies right now, but, but he was talking about the, the, the world that he grew up in uh, where, where he went to church every Sunday, but, uh, but all that he saw there was like this image of a God who was just angry at him and that he was constantly feeling guilty. And that's, the world sees that. The world sees a God who's just angry and they see a God who's very political, but do they see a God who wants to be known as a God who is always on the side of the oppressed? That's our job to show them that. So how can we be people who set the oppressed free? Let's pray. Father God, I thank you uh, that you are a God of grace, uh, that, that grace is the way in which you operate and use us in the world. And that grace gives us uh, the heart that can go to the poorest of the poor, to, to people who've made bad decisions and to people who are born in horrific circumstances. And we can offer hope and we can be generous and we can empower trusting you. So Father, I don't know what you're calling each of us to, but I know that you're calling your church to be people who fight for the oppressed. Show us ways, even in this week, how to take steps towards that. And Father, I thank you most of all for the fact that you put on flesh, came and were one of us, that you became poor, you became oppressed, so that we could know freedom is real. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name, amen.